Influential journalist and author Naomi Klein is best known for her left-wing activism, her writing, No Logo, about corporate manipulation, the shock doctrine about the undermining of democracy, to name but two. Her latest book, Doppelganger, is a shift for her. It's more personal, it's more literary, it's about identity and conspiracy culture. Naomi Klein is Professor of Climate Justice at the University of British Columbia in Canada. Not to be confused with Naomi Wolf, author of The Beauty Myth, once a prominent feminist, more recently an anti-vaxxer aligned with Steve Bannon et al., part of what Naomi Klein calls the mirror world. I asked Klein who Wolf, the other Naomi, is to her. Who she is to me is my doppelganger in the sense that uh, over the past more than decade now, um, I have been getting confused and conflated with her. There are many, many people out there, I'm sure some of your listeners, who think I am her, who believe that I wrote a book called The Beauty Myth and um, that I um, am now a full-time uh, vaccine misinformer. Um, but but yeah, I... I I became interested in the world that she represents and the way that conspiracy culture is really redrawing political maps in country after country. I'm speaking to you from Canada and they have had a big political influence where we are. Uh, people might remember the trucker convoy that spread to New Zealand and I think probably has had a big impact on your political sphere as well. So it might seem like a, a lighter and more personal subject matter, but I think it takes us to some pretty consequential areas. Just tell me a little bit more about Naomi Wolf, because there was some tipping point, presumably. I remember talking to her about the beauty myth. Um, mm -hmm. She was already a little shaky, if you ask me, but nevertheless, um, on she went. And there was something that happened that made her become embraced and welcomed the embrace of the right rather than mm -hmm. the more liberal left. Yeah, and you know, one of the when I say she's a case study, I think that we all know people, or many of us know people who changed um, in recent years. I've had so many conversations when I tell people I'm writing about conspiracy culture, um, starting with COVID, uh, but then looking at the historical roots and also look at the way conspiracy culture is now. Uh, uh, focusing on new on new targets, new areas. Um, now that the, the the COVID mandates have been lifted, you know, I know a lot of like, and people always tell me, "Oh my God, I can't talk to my sister anymore." Or, "God, I had a yoga teacher who I really liked, and now they just won't stop talking about QAnon." So she is part of a much broader phenomenon um, in terms of why she decided to join this mass migration of the minds, as I call it in the book. <laughs> um, I think there are there, there are various reasons. Um, one is, I suppose she got kind of canceled on the left, uh, to, to use an unpopular term, in that she, you know, repeatedly sort of put her foot in it was and became a sort of figure of ridicule on the left, because she was 
um, making increasingly conspiratorial claims, like she would take pictures of clouds and claim that this was part of some big government program, oddly shaped clouds, or she had conspiracy theories about um, uh, Edward Snowden or ISIS beheadings, claiming they were crisis actors. So this has been happening over a decade. And I always know when she's made a particularly outrageous claim, because when I go online, there are lots of people yelling at me, <laughs> thinking that I'm the one who made the claim. Right. So I always have to kind of reverse engineer it. Um, but there was a really kind of unbearable moment before COVID, the year before COVID, 2019, um, when she was being interviewed by uh, BBC Radio, and she was talking about a book that she had just published called Outrages uh, about persecution of gay men in Victorian England. And it was revealed that she'd made just an absolutely foundational error in her research. And this came out live on the air and she was dropped by her publisher. And then she became a figure of even more ridicule online. So, it, it, you know, in the book, I have a, this sort of not exactly totally serious, but also a little bit serious math formula to try to understand people who have made a similar flip from left to right, which is narcissism slash grandiosity, plus social media addiction, plus midlife crisis, divided by public shaming, equals right-wing meltdown. And I think that that public shaming where she really lost um, any hopes of regaining the audience that she once had on the left is the reason why she turned to figures like Steve Bannon. But they also turned to her, more importantly. They saw something in her. Interestingly enough, I was reading an article by Helen Lewis in The Atlantic, and she said that she remembers wondering whether Wolf might be a natural conspiracy theorist who had just lucked into writing about one conspiracy, the patriarchy, that happened to be true, which is an interesting way of looking at it, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, I think that's tricky. I mean, if, we, if we go back to the beauty myth, there, there was a slight conspiratorial tone to it in the sense that she had a theory about why it was that beauty standards for women in the 1980s seemed to be rising. So, you know, and, and so she was saying that just at the moment when glass ceilings were shattering for women in all kinds of workplaces and in post-secondary education, the standards for how women were supposed to look in these spaces, she was arguing, were rising to such a level that it constituted a, almost a third work shift. So she talked about the third beauty shift. So there was the 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 shift that you did at work, then there was the, the second shift of, of domestic labor, which many feminists have written about. And then she argues that there's a third shift. But where it becomes conspiratorial is she, is she sort of has a few lines in the book where she says that it's almost like a plot to keep women from competing on equal basis with their male colleagues. But, you know, the truth is the book was a piece of cultural criticism. It had some sloppy errors. I, I don't think it was a conspiracy theory. And, you know, you'll notice that I don't refer to conspiracy theorists. No. I talk about conspiracy culture um, because th there really isn't a theory, a coherent theory. You know, when I, when I would listen to hours and hours of the shows where she is now a regular, like Steve Bannon's um, War Room or other right-wing shows, I was struck that they had a lot in common with uh, climate change deniers, who are another group that I've studied um, and, you know, when I, when I would go to climate change denier conferences, I, that's the thing that struck me most was that the theories would contradict each other, right? It's like one speaker would say climate change 
isn't happening. In fact, the world's getting colder and then, and then everyone would clap and then somebody else would get, get up and say, well, the world is getting hotter, but you should just buy air conditioning. And everyone would clap at that. And there would never be, there would never be, or there was, and humans aren't causing it or it's plant food, but there was never any attempt to reconcile these contradictions. And the same is true around COVID. Uh, You know, there, there, there will be a huge conspiracy claim about uh, COVID being a bioweapon that was hatched by uh, the Chinese communists and Bill Gates in order to depopulate the earth. And then a couple of weeks later, it COVID is nothing but a common cold. What are you worried about? And it doesn't, and then nobody ever tries to reconcile these claims. Like if it is a bioweapon, surely you should try not to get it, right? Uh, um, so, you know, they're, they're, I think she is mainly, you know, what the kids these days call a cloud chaser in that she goes wherever the heat is, wherever the action is, wherever she's going to get some clicks and some views. And she's very good at playing the the attention economy game. And she's, yes, it, it has worked for her. As you say, Wolf floats conspiracy claims and then she says, I'm just asking questions. And we're familiar with that kind of tactic. The interesting thing is, and what, and what fuels your doppelganger uh, uh, argument and the, the idea of the mirror world, is that Your book, The Shock Doctrine, was in part about how elites take advantage of emergencies for their own benefit, disaster capitalism. And in a way, that could be seen as what she is saying, Big Pharma, taking advantage of COVID in order to feather its own nest. And this is why she hit such a nerve with you when she was being mistaken for you and vice versa, correct? She could have been you in another world. Well, you know, I argue more broadly that some of what we're seeing on the far right today is a strange kind of doppelganger of the left. What I have noticed in in, in the political platform of these right-wing populist figures or neo-fascist figures like Bannon or Giorgio Malone in Italy, um, you know, this is not the right that I grew up with. This is a right that takes issues that have traditionally been issues of the left, like a critique of globalization, a critique of corporate power of the banks, and mixes and matches it with transphobia, um, xenophobia, into this very potent cocktail. Um, and what I'm interested in, as somebody who has been part of movements with I would hope is a more rigorous fact-based critique of corporate globalization and transnational capital is how we cede less territory to the right. Because I think part of the reason the right is successfully rising is that we have been engaged in these kind of mirror, a very reactive mirror games with one another. So when an issue becomes an issue on the right, it becomes almost untouchable among liberals and leftists. So once the right started being anti-vax around COVID vaccines, the response from a lot of liberals and leftists was just to tell everyone to roll up their sleeves and get get their booster, um, which is fine, but not if it's your whole political program, because I think that there was a rightful reason to be very suspicious of the way pharmaceutical companies were profiteering were putting their patents ahead of getting uh, shots to everyone on the planet, um, which is the best way to fight a pandemic, to make sure that everybody is getting vaccinated instead of just the, the rich world first. 
or you know to focus on more collective solutions like universal health care like paid sick leave like the right to to clean indoor air and so uh, it, you know this is what what I what I'm looking at in the book is how we have a kind of a doppelganger politics where where rather than being guided by clear legible principles we increasingly have a left and a right that just react to one another right so the consequences of not wanting to belong to that bunch of crazy anti-vaxxers over there is to refuse to engage with any discussion about how there may well indeed be adverse reactions to any vaccinations. And the vaccination did not, in fact, stop you getting COVID, albeit it stopped you getting so sick from it. There was no nuance. I think we lost a lot of nuance. You know, I think that that there were debates that we needed to have about prolonged school closures, for instance. And I don't know how it played out in New Zealand, but but where I am, there was like a lot of the left was was just responding to the way the right was opposing all of these health mandates by just kind of doing propaganda for our government's health departments, which was just not enough. And I think we weren't seeing the way some of the lockdowns were unfairly impacting small business people, uh, favoring large large businesses and so on, because we didn't want to be like them. I, I've read a few articles analyzing the recent elections in New Zealand that have looked at, you know, how, how some, of, some of it can be understood as a, a, as a backlash to, to, to some COVID policies. I'm interested in learning more about that. But I think, you know, what interests me most about conspiracy culture is the way they sort of distract attention away from what I would describe as like the conspiracies in plain view that, yes, pharmaceutical companies really did, like you you mentioned the shock doctrine. Um, You know, I have tracked in the aftermath of many large scale shocks and disasters that that corporate players and governments often take advantage of them to push through a pre-existing agenda. And that did happen during COVID. It wasn't a conspiracy. They didn't cause the pandemic in order to profit from it. But I think by not focusing enough on the way tech companies were exploiting COVID in order to push, uh, well, you know, self-driving cars, more remote schooling, you know, uh, telehealth, there was a whole agenda a lot of territory got ceded to the right, and I think this is part of how we're why we're seeing a resurgent right around the world. It's it's pretty uncomfortable because we should all, and you are, you have been. This is your career, skeptical of the prevailing wisdom. You know, you question orthodoxies. That's legitimate for a journalist, and yet. Well, we'd all be put out of business if we weren't uh, allowed to to do (laughs) investment. During COVID, the orthodoxy was to be defended against the conspiracy culture. And thus, we all ended up being in some way dishonest. Is Is that your argument? Well, I think that's part of it. Um, and because I think we are seeing some pretty nefarious characters exploit those silences, it behooves us to understand what part of what they're saying is true. Uh, you know, I always used to say about Trump, there's always a little something true that he says. Most of what he says is not true, but there's always a kernel of truth. And one of the things that I've noticed about conspiracy culture is that they get the facts wrong, yes. but they often get the feelings right. Yes, And this was very much true of my own doppelganger when um, when she really took a star turn on the right. It was when she was talking about 
uh, vac vaccine verification apps that we all downloaded onto our phones um, after getting vaccinated. And then those, uh, you know, they were sometimes called vaccine passports. They were scanned in order to get into restaurants or theater and so on. We all remember this, right? Um, now, that I think is an example of an area that could have called for more public debate. Um, you know, what does it mean to allow technology to mediate our access to collective spaces in this way? Wolf made some outrageous claims about those apps. She said that they were part of a plan to bring a CCP style social credit system, a Chinese Communist Party social credit system to the United States and the West more broadly. And it was going to introduce, as she said, slavery forever. She claimed that um, once we downloaded these apps, the government would be able to hear our conversations and know what we were talking about, and there would no longer be any dissent. Now, that wasn't true. But what was interesting was that she seemed to be tapping into real fears about high-tech surveillance and the fact that we all have sort of questions about what our phones are tracking and, and where that information goes. And there are legitimate questions around what Shoshana Zuboff has called surveillance capitalism. But instead of really engaging with that, there was this sort of liberal sneer which said, well, wait till they hear about cell phones. Um, yeah. And and that to me really encaps encapsulates what I'm describing as this, this overreactivity, because what about our cell phones? Like, are we, what are we saying when we're, we're turning this into a kind of a snide comment? Are we saying we're okay with our cell phones collecting that data or not, you know, being sure what our, whether we have any privacy rights at all? The solution to that is to have real regulatory responses that protect our data and our privacy. It's not just to sort of sneer about those crazies. I don't think that we can be surprised that when these issues that a lot of people care about are not being addressed by our political leaders, that, of course, they're co-opted by political opportunists and grifters. One of the uh, chapters in your book deals with, this is the title of the chapter, Autism and the Anti-Vax Prequel. And you are careful not to talk too much about your son. Um, he's neurodivergent. But it led you to what you might call the, the, the autism parent culture. What, what, what did you learn from that? What's your take on that? How have you dealt with that? Yeah, so um, what, you know, one of the things that I try to understand in the book is how this information architecture was able to spring into action so quickly in the early months of COVID. Uh, um, like, how was it possible that there could be so much in misinformatical misinformation so readily available? So I spend a fair amount of time in the book looking at how the worlds of sort of peak wellness, um, and I think in New Zealand you saw that convergence of the wellness green left coming together with the far right yeah, around their own convoy. Yeah. And so, you know, the through line in the book is not Naomi Wolf. And, the, you know, that's really just a jumping off point for the book. The through line for, for Doppelganger is the figure of the double, the way we double ourselves. And it, it struck me that having a doppelganger was a very rich tool for understanding our topsy-turvy time where 
in many ways, we create doubles of ourselves to represent us online. That's what our avatars are. They're sort of idealized versions of us. And our idealized versions of us talk to other people's idealized versions of themselves on you know, platforms like Twitter or X or Facebook or Instagram, whatever. You know, I think there's other ways that we create these idealized doubles of ourselves. And wellness is one of those where we, we create like we have an idealized physical form of ourselves that we're constantly reaching towards if we're deep into this world of sort of pure food and peak uh, fitness. And that is why there was so much suspicion of these shots of these of, of big pharma kind of entering your body as an invasion is the way it was imagined. Uh, and it resonated in particular in these communities that had really made a fetish out of being completely natural, natural food, clean food, no, you know, as, as little pharmaceuticals as possible and so on. But another way that we create doubles of ourselves can be through our children. You know, we th a lot of parents kind of see their own children as a replica of themselves. And in a sense, the child becomes the promise of immortality. And yeah, as you mentioned, I have a, a neuroatypical child. And because of that, I have a window into the world of the autism parent community. And there's lots of wonderful parents of neuroatypical kids who I've met over the years. But I've also met a certain kind of parent that identifies as a as an autism warrior mom or dad who's sort of in a state of rage at the world that they didn't get the child they imagined that they had a right to. And so I look at the, the, the child, as, this idea of the child almost as kind of property of the parent and an idea that I, I think that the autism vaccine myth, which long predates the various myths about COVID vaccines, is this idea that you had this perfect child, um, this normal child, and then they got vaccinated with their childhood vaccines for MMR. And then that child was taken from you and replaced almost with, 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 with a defective child. So, you know, I look at, at, at the representations of autistic children in mythology, the changeling myths. And, and ultimately, I think a lot of the battlegrounds today, um, whether it's over all gender bathrooms at schools or whether we're teaching a true history of our settler colonial nations, in our classrooms, you know, or these battles over masks and vaccines, they often have at the center this idea of the sort of pure child in need of protection, where they're just seen as the property of the parent in, to, to, to mold them into a replica of themselves, which is a kind of doppelganger that I think is quite problematic. Mm. Further than that, you quote Bill McKibben as saying to you of the parents that have turned as you put it, the well-off liberal parents have turned childhood into an achievement arms race. Bill McKibben said, instead of figuring out how to have a world where everyone can thrive, they want their kids to thrive in a world that is falling apart. And I guess that that is, if you want to put your finger on the difference between right and left, that might be it, the individual versus the society. Yes, but it's interesting, you know, I, I, in that passage that you read, you know, I say it's, it's liberal parents that are that that do this, at certainly, as much as and possibly more than um, more conser conservative parents. 
you know, one of the things that's interesting in the book, as you know, I, I look at, at various uh, doppelganger stories in literature, mythology, film, and often when you have a doppelganger story, like uh, Edgar Allan Poe's William Wilson or Dostoevsky's The Double, um, you know, they begin with this idea that you're going to confront this the, the, this double that that is ruining your life that you know that is wrecking havoc. But very often, the double turns out to be you. Uh, and so, though the book begins as an exploration of what I call the mirror world, where Naomi Wolf now hangs out with Steve Bannon and Tucker Carlson, it ends up holding up a mirror to the world that you know, that I'm in. And I don't think we come off looking very well, unfortunately. I don't think any of us are pure. Uh, and I and that quest for purity uh, of projecting the most perfected version of ourselves and our kids, I, I think it's gets us into a lot of trouble. And this is this is on a, on a broader front, the wellness cultures link with conspiracy theorists. Be, they're drawn to conspiracy theorists because they want to find a reason for their dis-ease and a cure for it. Is that is that why? I think the underlying tenets of some parts of wellness culture already kind of rhymed with the paranoid individualism of far-right conspiracies. And here I'm, you know, I'm talking about the sort of like the, the big corporate wellness message is we live in this very unequal, uh, kind of frightening world with more and more inequality, more climate shocks, and um, more economic precarity. And, and the message of the sort of optimally well Instagram influencers is, is really, you can protect yourself, you as an individual can take charge of of your body, um, your, your health as a primary site of influence, control and competitive edge. But the flip side of that can get really ugly. And I think we saw this during COVID, like the flip side of this idea that you are perfecting yourself as your competitive edge in this cruel world is that people who don't exercise that level of control maybe deserve what they get. You know, I, I tell the story in, in the book of going door knocking. My husband ran for office for our um left party in Canada, the NDP, left-ish, because um, Social Democratic Party. Um, and uh, in the summer of 2021, we went no- door knocking in a pretty kind of hippy-dippy community. And he he knocked on one door where he said he could s- uh, smell the sandalwood incense from the sidewalk. And, you know, out came a very fit uh, yoga teacher. And the only thing she wanted to talk to him about were was vaccines and vaccine passports and whether or not you know they, they he was he was going to um you know be pro vaccine and he said that he was and they thought it was important and that was the party's position and and she said well i have a strong immune system i you know i i, I don't need to get vaccinated and he said well um, you know, the thing is that not everybody does have a strong immune system. And that's, you know, that that's why we need to protect each other. And she said, of those people who didn't have a strong immune system, I think they should die, which was not, you know, what, what one expects to hear from their, you know, hippy dippy neighbors in British Columbia, Canada. And so, you know, I'm not saying that everybody who's involved in 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 fitness has these worldviews. But I think that 
that understanding how much is being placed on the individual and the optimized self within late capitalism helps explain this strange intersection of, you know, what I call the far, the far right and the far out. And is that why conspiracism or the conspiracy culture tends towards the right rather than the left? Because it's like the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but as long as I'm all right. Yeah, I do think that that thread of kind of hyper-individualism is really important to understand because that's always been part of the story of the right. Um, that, you know, you, that if you, if, if, if you succeed in this system, it's, it's by dint of your hard work and maybe you, your better genes, um, and you deserve it and, and you, you are the author of your own success. Um, and people who have less success didn't work hard enough, aren't good enough and so on. It's, it's a story that rash, that is very adept at rationalizing huge inequalities and, and injustices. And I think that, um, you know, this is why the, the way in which we have placed so much onto the individual, I mean, the whole reason why we are out there on social media perfecting these our avatars, our doubles, our personal brands is because we've been told not to expect jobs that can support us for our lifetimes and, and you know, certainly not a pension. So, you know, I try to make that to, to 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 make this not about the individuals who are doing it. I think people are just trying to get by in a system that is, um, you know, is is very very tough, uh, and that is telling all of us. Every we're all getting this message that the way to protect yourself is to optimize yourself in these various ways, or your kids, and that's what all of this performing of the self and perfecting of the self and optimizing of the self is about. But it does seem to be pretty compatible with these far, these far right conspiratorial uh, views. But you know, when I look at the trucker convoy in in Canada, um, a lot of it started with you know it, it was sometimes described as a working class uprising. It wasn't so much working class; it was a lot of small business people. It was people who owned their own rig, their own trucking rig, or maybe they owned their own yoga studio. Um, but they had pretty much played by the rules of the game. You know, they were taking care of themselves and their families. And and I think the reason why COVID was so hard for some of these folks to metabolize without the conspiracy theory is just to believe that it was real and that we needed to take these actions to protect one another is that it fundamentally challenged the central story at the heart of capitalism, which is that we, our job is really just to protect ourselves and our families. And when suddenly we had to think about one another, there were different responses to that. I think some people welcomed the arrival of a social state. They welcomed the revelations of our enmeshment and our entanglement. But a lot of people just felt like, you know, that, that, that the rules of the game were suddenly being changed on them and they didn't like that at all. And also a lot of the rules, um, the ways in which the co- the COVID mandates played out were you know were were pretty unfair to a lot of a lot of small business people. It put everything onto them. I'm talking to Naomi Klein about her book Doppelganger. One of the terms you use, and it was coined by some political theorists, Callison and Slobodian, is diagonalist politics. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? 
These are these are two scholars, William Callison and Quince Libidian, um, two scholars of European politics and in particular um, German politics. So they were looking at the first anti-lockdown protests in Germany, which were quite large and contained many of the elements that we've been talking about an extreme rejection of traditional democratic institutions with elements of spiritual holism and libertarianism. A lot of, of who they, they, people they call like movement hustlers, like, like, like just people kind of selling t-shirts and subscriptions and just seemingly maybe in it for the grift. And the, and the through line is this idea that all power is conspiracy, that there is no institution that isn't trying to pull one over on you, which once again is pretty compatible with a, with a libertarian worldview. The, um... But the reason why I think diagonalism is, is helpful as a frame mm-hmm. is it explains this migration, it explains, you know, and they also talk about how, though it has elements that we might traditionally associate with the green left, it is reliably hijacked by right-wing parties. It reliably arcs to the right. You know, one exception might be a figure like RFK Jr. in the States who's running under the in the Democratic Party primaries, but he's running with the support of quite a few high-profile Republicans like Steve Bannon and, and Roger Stone, um, who I think are just kind of chaos agents and are hoping that he's peeling away support from Biden so that Trump will get in. There's a debate to be had about whether he is on the left or the right. You've called this your most Jewish book. <laughs> and indeed, your mother suggested that the confusion with um, the other Naomi was because or exacerbated because you're both Jewish and she was convinced that it, there was some kind of anti-Semitism in there. The anti-Semitism argument is is peaking at the moment, as you'll be painfully aware, because of what's happening in Gaza, because the world is divided between the need for Israel to eradicate Hamas at all costs or the need for Palestinians to be saved from the hammer of Israel. Taking your broad theory, how do you deal with that? How do you answer that? How do you yeah. avoid being this or that, this or that? <laughs> I think anybody who's following um, the horrors in in Gaza uh, um, and in Israel right now, um, not just Gaza, the West Bank, um, the there it's the the debate is almost like there 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 are mirror arguments on either side that that are just replicas of one another um i don't know how much you want to get into this but i've just been really struck by the way in which people talk past each other um and every, any argument that you would make on the palestinian side there's a a replica oh, argument yeah. Uh, um, you know, like, for instance, um, you know, the, the claim that there are no civilians in Israel, uh, you know, some some uh, Hamas supporters made that outrageous cra- claim early on. Or, um, and, uh, you know, that's outrageous. There are absolutely civilians in Israel. Um, 
and it is illegal under international law to target civilians as Hamas did on October the 7th. Um, and I think many, many principled Palestinian voices have been very clear um, that though Palestinians have a right to resist occupation, they do not have a right to target civilians. But then the Israeli state, much more powerful, um, basically treats all of Gaza as if they're all human shields and not civilians. Um, so there's this kind of back and forth. And in the book I talk about, uh, I quote a scholar named Carolyn Rooney in the UK who talks about Israel's doppelganger politics. And doppelganger stories often end with the annihilation of the other, right? The idea that you go and confront your doppelganger and you end up uh, stabbing yourself or killing yourself uh, because the other turns out to be us. And as a Jewish person, frankly, that is what the ongoing and escalating horrors in, in Gaza show me, that in attempting to banish and destroy the other, and I, and I think within the Israeli narrative, everything is projected, like everything that we can't bear to look about ourselves, we project onto the Palestinian other, which is Rooney's argument. So in attempting to to confront the other, to destroy the other, I, I think that Israel is destroying itself. Um, is It's a, certainly destroying its it, any kind of ethical basis, you know, if not destroying the body, then, then the spirit, principles, love of debate, elastic identities, uh, souls, if you believe in that kind of thing. So, you know, I was uh, listening to an interview with ta Coates, who, who talked about how his time on the West Bank and watching how militarized Israeli society had become made him understand for the first time the ethics of nonviolence because it protects the soul of the people who refuse the violence. Um, you know, I think the the idea that force, as opposed to negotiation, as opposed to any kind of political solution, is the way to settle any and every dispute, which seems to be the guiding force in Israel, is, is profoundly uh, dangerous to the world, and also to Jews. Um, you know, I don't think it makes anybody safe. I've been, you know, I'm part of a group called Jewish Voice for Peace that has been around for a while, but has grown exponentially in recent weeks because so many Jewish people are looking for a way to say not in our name that we don't, we, you know, um, yes, those were war crimes on October the 7th. And yes, we have grief and we are mourning, um, but that grief cannot be used as an excuse to engage in violence that is seems to be genocidal. Um, so I don't know if this interview is going in a direction we didn't expect. I don't, I know, don't mind that at all. But what I, but <laughs> I book, want to the do... The book does end in Gaza, in my own experience in Gaza. You know, this, it, this does have to do with, you know, I, I, in the, the book I talk about, you know, different, different pieces of doppelganger literature. The one I engage with most deeply is the novel Operation Shylock by Philip Roth. Who, who interestingly enough, Naomi... <laughs> has been cancelled by many people on account of his, you know, allegedly misogynist attitudes. I'm really interested. Including that by you, me. Well, <laughs> I'm very interested that you should choose to find him such a fertile ground. Yeah, I, you know, I, 
I, in the book, I talk about how the last the last time I read a book by Philip Roth um, was yeah. when I was a 20, 20 year old university student, and I threw a Philip Roth book across my university dorm room and vowed never ever uh, to read another book by Philip Roth because I was so sort of exhausted by the way women were consistently depicted in his novels, and I just decided I was done. And yet, you know, in order to write this book about doppelgangers, I. I was rereading and reading for the first time many of the classics of doppelganger literature, and I kept hearing references in other books to Roth's sort of quintessential doppelganger book, Operation Shylock, in which the main character is named Philip Roth, wrote all of Philip Roth's novels, and finds himself um, being tormented by another person calling himself Philip Roth, who was running around Jerusalem. Uh, trying to engineer a reverse exodus of the Jews back to Eastern Europe because he has become convinced that Israel will become the coffin of the Jews because it was such a bad idea in the first place. And the reason why the book is called Operation Shylock is because he, you know, one of the characters in the book makes makes the case that every Jew has a doppelganger that is not created by them, but is the doppelganger that the non-Jewish world projects onto them, who is the figure of Shylock, the money-lending, mutilating character in Shakespeare's Merchant of Venice. And that is, you know, that belief in the primordial nature of Jew hatred. And this, and there's a profound strain of, you know, what I refer to as Judeo-pessimism, this idea that we will never change um, the, 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 the dynamics of anti-Semitism, that they will always uh, eventually want to eradicate us, is the argument for why Jews need a fortress state um, so that we will never again be as vulnerable as we were under the, the rule of the Nazis in Europe. And this is a very dangerous bargain that has been offered because I think, you know, I grew up with the the mantra of never again. Um, and in my sort of lefty Jewish home, never again meant never again to anyone, um, that the lessons of the Holocaust were that we need to commit ourselves as a species to never allowing a group of people to be eradicated in whole or in part, as the Genocide Convention says. And we have this whole architecture of international law that prevents collective punishment, um, that prevents the targeting of civilians, that, that enshrines the rights of refugees, and it's too weak and it's not enough, but we have these laws against apartheid, against, uh, against genocide. And that is the universalist cry of never again. But the thing is that it was not the only response to the Holocaust. There was another response, not just from the Zionists, but from the European powers and from the you know North American countries who didn't want to open their borders to Jewish refugees and were happy for there to be a state in Palestine to solve their quote unquote Jewish problem. And so in Israel, never again, never meant never again to anyone. It meant never again to the Jews and by any means necessary. And I think those two ideas, the universalist never again to anyone and then never again to the Jews, really can't coexist right. um, on the same planet. And now what we're seeing in Gaza is one waging war on the other. Um, the never again to the Jews waging war on the whole international legal architecture um, that sprung up in the aftermath of the Holocaust, which is why, you know, it, I think you see so many um, Jews joining the Palestine Solidarity Movement and saying not in our name. 
coming back to the other Naomi for a moment, and and one of the umbrella messages of your book, I think, is that nobody should be cancelled or few people should be cancelled out of hand because people are made up of many parts. And I want to read you something that you quote. It says, People are asking why I'm taking this side. There are no sides. I mourn all victims, but every law of war and international law is being broken in the targeting of civilians in Gaza. I stand with the people of Gaza, exactly because things might have turned out differently if more people had stood with the Jews in Germany. Now, that's Naomi Wolf and her experience, you write, of being harshly attacked, threatened and professionally penalised for questioning Zionist orthodoxy is far from unique. Now, that's a bit of herself that didn't sound like you put into a bonkers blender as you describe some of her other positions. But on that, you agree with her wholeheartedly. And that's not the only part of Naomi that you feel a fellow feeling with. It's interesting, is it not, that, I don't know, are you able to talk to her now? Has she contacted you? What would happen if you were to sit down with her now? Thank you for reading that. You know, I, I, I included that in the book because I think it, um, it, it complicates the story. It and does. I don't think anyone is just one thing, you know, Freud, Freud, um, when he wrote about doppelgangers in his essay, the uncanny, he speculated that one of the reasons why we're drawn to the figure of the doppelganger in cinema and literature um, and in visual art is because the idea that there's another you walking around out there stands in for the lives we might have led. Like we all know that the life we have now is the result of a series of choices that we made and didn't make and that other people made for us and that we could have a different life and be a different person under you know, slightly different circumstances. This is this is why I think the multiverse films, like every um, everything, everywhere, all at once, yeah. uh, uh, hold such appeal. Um, and I think you know, I say in the book that that Wolf doesn't just look like me. For those who think she looks like me, um, I think she looks like us. I think she looks like our culture. I think she looks like a culture that rewards a certain kind of behavior and discourages another, that monetizes attention, rewards a kind of narcissism. But I think she's a complicated person. I think that she she could have been different, maybe under a different system. And I... So could you. Uh, so could I. And, um, you know, if she ever did want to talk to me, I would be happy to. I I met her when I was an undergraduate and she published The Beauty Myth. And I write about that at the end of the book. And I did reach out to her several times to interview her. And at that time, she didn't see a value in it. Um, but maybe that could change. And that was Naomi Klein talking about her book Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World.